Last week, I was reminded about how much I love and miss living in Chicago when I was with my brothers and sisters, Jason Maiden, Chris Gray, Michael Tubbs, Dre, Jesse Williams, Shantae, Essence, Henry, Steve, Dylan, Geraldine, and Nick, and everybody else that was hanging out at the Scully Summit with Chance the Rapper gave away free access to Scully to all the juniors and seniors of Chicago public schools. For those of you, through a nonprofit called Social Works. And for, for those of you that don't know what Scholarly is, Scholarly uh, takes all the scholarships that are hard to find and makes them easy to find on one platform so that you can pursue, a, uh, 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 so you can get an education uh, if you need the resources or if you need more resources. And um, I was moved to tears at the summit when Jason reminded the kids that they are messengers of the hope and promises and all the beautiful things that the city that they see in the city uh, and that they are messengers of what we're capable of when we work together. Uh, Jason is from the south side of Chicago and a perfect example of someone that has broken not just into tech, but also into the highest levels of Nike to become the global brand director, working directly with Michael Jordan and all kinds of other people like that. Um, and on this episode, we're not just going to explain what's going on in the tech world so you could break in to become a designer, but we're also going to talk about how to navigate the culture, how the music world is also relevant for the tech world, and how Jason, as a member of Black Jedi Zulu, that includes Ninth Wonder and and um, Young Guru and all kinds of people like that, how that influence has helped him uh, rise to these levels. Um, and we're 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 also going to talk about just some of the some of the the local institutions that are in Chicago as well. If you want to take the next steps, um, if you are one of those people um, but don't know where to start, um, like our Facebook page. Join our community on Facebook. Tell your friends about this first. Um, but also, check out, you know, Blue Lacuna, Blue1647. Check out uh, Full Stack Academy if you want to learn how to code. We got that relationship. Send me or Timor an email, Ruben or Timor at BreakingStars.com if you want to take that step. Uh, hit up my buddy Jimmy Odom at World Business Chicago. I, I got hella people out there in Chicago, and we're going to do a lot of amazing things in Chicago soon. But the first step is to join the family. Uh, meet some people, connect, and I'm going to start rambling because I know you guys are eager to break in, and so am I, so let's do it. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think, but we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table, getting in. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies, Arthur and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so it's Monday night. It's almost 8 p.m. And um, for those of you who are just tuning in, uh, we always record out of San Francisco, but Silicon Valley is not, is not just a SF. And uh, there's a lot of cool startups, a lot of big tech companies that are based in Mountain View, Palo Alto, in uh, San Jose. And tonight we're recording our episode out of Palo Alto, out, actually out of the Playground Global. It's a cool accelerator down in um, Palo Alto. We have the super dope guest, and I'm very excited to chat with them. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Absolutely. So today's guest is from the south side of Chicago, and his name is Jason Maiden. He's very close to us. And for those of you that don't know, Jason is widely known as a global brand director for Jordan Brand and Nike where he led and contributed to the creation of several shoes for athletes and cultural icons, including Carmelo Anthony, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, Jared Jeter, and Michael Jordan himself. After that, he served several stints in tech at Excel and as an advisor for Stanford's design school before co-founding a startup with Steph Curry and eventually launching his own startup called Super Heroic. In case you haven't heard, if you haven't seen the van on the tours, Super Heroic is a tech-enabled system of play for kids starting with shoes that help them discover that they are actually superheroes. Outside of work, Jason serves as a co-founder of Silicon Valley that has taken the term Silicon Valley to make it our own. And as Timor mentioned in the intro, a lot of people think San Francisco is Silicon Valley, but it's not. It's actually not even a place. And he's doing a lot to make sure that his platform is leveraged with his co-founders to do a lot of educational work in places like East Palo Alto with Street Code Academy, to collaborate with other teams like Black Jedi Zulu, 
that he's also part of. And I can go on and on and on, but I'm going to start there because Jason is just an amazing person and you could rave about him for days, but he's a family man. We're here with them. And without further ado, welcome, Jason. Hey, what up, what up? Welcome, welcome. Yeah, so we're excited to be here. And so, as you know, on this podcast, it's not just about your story, which we're going to talk about. We want to we want to know the difference between a global brand director at a retail company versus a senior designer at a tech company so people can understand the difference between the two. Yeah. So I would say um, there's there's several significant differences when you run design or a creative organization within a larger organization like a Nike or a Jordan. The first is the accountability structure, the incentive structure, and the reporting structure. So accountability means I'm now responsible to make sure my team is consistent and clear, and they design objects and experiences that look like it came from one singular person. Mm -hmm. Because when people buy products from Nike or Jordan, they're not buying because a designer worked on it. They're buying because of the essence of the company. So the creation ethos are intended to teach the team how to strategically say no to stuff. So we put filters in place. So that's how we measure accountability. When I think about organizationally, what that looks like from building teams and reporting structure, you have to now figure out what's the strength of your team member and how do you apply that strength against a specific discrete task that enables the business and the brand. So it's about doing things like strength finders, being operationally efficient, really being introspective and understanding how to serve the people that report to you. So you have to get to know them to serve them. Most people look at direct reports and leadership through the lens of me telling you what to do. That's not what good leadership is. Good leadership is me serving you, understanding what you would like to do and the gaps between where you are and where you want to go. And then mm-hmm. giving you the tools and experiences to get there. Because my job is to find the person to replace me in a large organization. Succession planning. Mm-hmm. Most people don't think about it that way. Mm-hmm. They think they're there forever, but they don't realize they lease their role. So all their motives are to keep their job versus training the person that's going to replace them when they grow and they move throughout the organization. Now, when you look at senior designers within a startup context, you may not have the time to build a team. Mm-hmm. You may not have the time to create design language and design ethos and structure. You have to react and, and be very quick and nimble. So in that capacity, it's less about me grooming talent, more about me advocating for the use of design across multiple verticals. So design, if you remove that title, is simply asking better questions. So it's curiosity that's contained within the vertical of design. Mm-hmm. But when you unleash that curiosity across a startup, I'm able to look at everything from the business model to the service model to the operational model, to the marketing tactics that we deploy in the market, to how we recruit, you have to creatively ask questions about how can we signal to people our potential? Because now people are joining a startup because of the founding team and their potential. Mm -hmm. People join a corporation because of the products and the affiliation. Got it. Very different. So, I mean, it's neither one is good or bad. It's just, it changes the risk profile significantly. Got it. Got it. No, that's that's a super helpful breakdown. I know in the beginning of the pre-chat, we were talking a little bit more about, you know, What's the way that somebody breaks into design? Curious, you know, how does someone from the south side of Chicago get to your level? And like kind of how, how would you explain the process of breaking into design? Yeah, so it's interesting. So growing up in the Wild Wild Hundreds in Roseland in Chicago, design was a necessity because I didn't have new objects. I didn't have nice things. And so I had to create what I wanted or modify what I had to be what I wanted. So Understanding that the principle of the the foundation of design, like I mentioned, is curiosity. The application of design is against, you know, making things and discovering new things. So that was the first piece, really giving myself the chance to create and modify objects that I currently had in my closet or in my room. At that point, you know, it was just customization. It wasn't truly design. I didn't make it from scratch. Mm -hmm. But then I started to learn more about the classics. I started to learn about art history. I started to learn about art rhetoric. I started to learn about how to do proper critiques. And none of this was given to me in school. This was me getting on the train, paying for my own uh, memberships to the art museums, going to the art museum almost every day, sketching every piece of art that was on the wall, trying to read every book in the library, trying to see every file in the archive, because I knew that there was some kid somewhere on the planet who had private art tutors, had an embarrassment of riches in terms of resources to create, and I didn't. So the one thing that I told myself is they may have better material to create with, but they won't have a better work ethic. They won't have a better hunger. So I just outworked them, got to art and design school, got an internship. And that's when I found out about the reason design even exists. It's the child of the industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. People were taught to design for manufacturing. That was the main thing. The first time 
we started to see design. It was about the craft uh, arts and crafts movement where they made an object that was beautiful, but they couldn't replicate it numerous times for people to consume it. Mm-hmm. Once we got into automation and manufacturing, now I'm designing for assembly and disassembly. So mm-hmm. now you layer in art and engineering and you get what is called industrial design. So you can just walk that out in terms of the history and see where we are today. When we look at experience design, we look at service design and all these different emerging industries, but without setting that foundation upon the history in which art exists, you kind of miss a huge amount of inspiration and knowledge. Because when you look at art and you look at the trajectory of art and its response to society, it's a reflection of how people lived. Mm-hmm. They put in the art with the, you know, the things that they couldn't say publicly. Design is the same way. We design a future that we aspire you know, to have, even if it's you know, counterintuitive or if it's against the popular narrative. Mm-hmm. So when people create Without the context of history, it just kind of becomes an inanimate object. You separate yourself from the people you serve. And so design is a service industry because we're supposed to be servants of humanity. What I create is supposed to be something that makes your life simple, mm-hmm. makes your life more frictionless, uh, makes it easier for you to be here you know, um, during your time period on this planet. So without knowing where we've been, it's really hard to create the future and knowing where we're going to head. Yeah. Yeah. And in tech, we talk a lot about UX, UI, things like that. And you know, you're touching on things that a lot of people don't talk about, which is like understanding the history. You broke into Jordan or Nike as a first of something, right? You weren't, there was no other people like you. No. Nah. Yeah. So how, what was that story about? Oh man. So, um, I got to Nike at the age of 19. I was the first um, black design intern with the design background. They had other people of color who were designing, but they came, came into design through engineering or just hustling to get in. But I was the first classically trained designer to go into Nike with my background, with my knowledge of, you know, some of the trends and modern methods of making. And it was a unique experience because the athletes looked like me, but there were very few people that actually created for them that looked like them. So there was a disconnect in the discrete empathy that comes with designing for audiences. Like some things are just, you know, you have to understand it. You have to experience it in order to design for it. And it was crazy. It was crazy. You know, I, I got there. By writing letters mm-hmm. and reaching out to people. This mm-hmm. was early internet. So, so it wasn't cold emails. <laughs> nah, man. It was, you know, I sent a few emails, but, you know, back then it was like, you know, people weren't checking them. This was early 2000, you know, yeah. people weren't checking them like they are now. I actually showed up at Nike. I bought a ticket and just popped up. Knocking on doors. Um, 100%. Like I told them, I'm like, they have to tell me no to my face. Yep. Like most yep. people won't tell you no to your face. That's a good point. You know, they'll do it through email. You give them, you give them an easy way to ignore you. I just refuse to be ignored. There it is. Like, and I think because I believed in myself, my abilities, and I knew if I wasn't going to be picked up there, I'll be picked up somewhere. Because my whole philosophy as a, you know, as an athlete and as a person, either you're running with me or you're running from me. And, yeah. you know, with Nike, I was like, either they're running with me, they're on my team, or I'm going to go to a competitor and I'm going to destroy them. Yeah. So I yeah. was like, with me or against me. So, yeah. Jason, so um, it sounds like when you were breaking in, you were knocking on doors, you were getting in front of people. We speak to a lot of people breaking into tech, and a lot of them feel like they don't have a lot of value to offer, especially when they're early in their careers, when mm-hmm. they were 19, 20 years old. In your mind, I know you emphasize that you believed in yourself, but in your mind, what did you think you had to offer them that you had the confidence to stand in front of them and kind of pitch yourself and what you can do for them? Yeah, well, I mean, my value was my knowledge of the mm-hmm. consumer because I was a consumer. Mm-hmm. And I think we put value on skill sets. Skill sets determine, are determined by the technology that's relevant. Mindset isn't. Right? Mm-hmm. Capabilities aren't. Abilities are different. That's temporal. You only can so reasonably assume, you only can reasonably assume that the skills you have are relevant for a short fixed period of time. So for me, it was less about here's my raw skill set here. I can draw. I can think. It was like, no, I have very specific knowledge about things that you don't understand mm-hmm. because I speak a certain language and that language was culture. And at that time, Nike was a running company. You mm-hmm. know, they were Oregonian, you know, mindset, distance runners, pre-Fontaine. They didn't know necessarily how to scale what was happening with basketball and youth culture. They just didn't. It wasn't their expertise. They had people there that were tapping into it and were leveraging it, but not someone at the ground level. You know, so here I come in from the South Side and all my friends are fashion people and artists and doing their own thing. And we just had a different approach to how we created. And um, I knew 100% from the beginning that I can't subjugate myself to being considered less than by saying, this company's so great, I can't fit here. It's yeah. like, this company is a reflection of the people who buy its product. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the value was less, it was, it was less on me to prove my value to them. And it was more on them to prove their value to me. Yeah. yeah. You know? And I think you made a lot of great points. In today's world, if you're 19, 20, maybe you dropped out of college or you dropped out of high school, the value you have to offer to tech companies 
in general is just if they're building apps like Instagram, Snapchat, and they're building it for like 19, 16 year old high school kids, a designer who got a traditional degree who might be 30 years old will not think on the same like wavelengths that a 19, like 17 year old kid would. Uh And that's where you can come in and you can pitch yourself and offer them something that they just can't get if they wait around for someone who has 10 years of experience. It's It's a superpower. It is. It is. And sometimes our naivety manifests itself in bravery. And that's the biggest asset of being young is being Mm -hmm. brave because most people won't tell you no when they see someone that's willing to put themselves out there to say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm willing to work hard to figure it out. And this is what I have to offer is work ethic, curiosity and loyalty. Those three attributes you cannot put a price on Mm -hmm. because everything is transactional. So if I meet someone that's willing to grind, they're loyal and they're willing to, you know, be honest about what they're not good at. I'm willing to train them and work yep. with them because yep. nowadays everything is two years and I'm out, two years and I'm out. Mm-hmm. And you're going to see an economy shift where people who are jumping companies every two years and they haven't actually saw their vision through or executed or developed a good skill will be easily replaceable because mm-hmm. now you have a great resume, but no actual real experience. Yeah. So I think this concept of jumping and it's more about just dig in and get apprenticeships. That was what it was for me. My first few years, I was being a, an apprentice of some of the best designers and business thinkers. And that gave me a completely different approach to yeah. creation. You know? Can you give us an example of maybe a couple of those mentors that you had and some of the advice that they gave you? Yeah, I would say um, it was several. Um, the first and probably most prominent was Mr. Knight, the founder of Nike. I had the good fortune of meeting him because of just... Um, my desire to want to speak truth to power. So I had a very frank conversation about my frustrations with the shoes being released on Fridays and people in my neighborhood skipping schools. Mm. So I walked into his office without an appointment and told him like, look, bro, you, this needs to change. With my family, they're skipping, they're skipping school. Kids are (laughs) skipping school. And I don't know if it was that conversation that pushed to make the shift, but it happened when it shifted released to Saturdays. Um, And from that, we built a rapport. He always kept tabs on my career you know, he saw that I was, you know, doing things outside of design. You know, I would go to sit in, in meetings in supply chain and logistics and finance. And then eventually he was one of the people, one of the two people who paid for me to go to grad school at Stanford. But the advice that he gave me before I resigned, I think to this day is probably the best advice I ever received in my life. He was like, don't let your best work be here. Let your best work be your next work. Wow. And, you know, having someone who started that company tell me I was capable of starting something better. Yeah. Starting something that's more meaningful for me. That's huge. Me permission to be myself. Mm-hmm. It was huge. Another mentor was Tinker Hatfield, you know, who who had the good fortune of working with Michael Jordan early from the beginning and creating what is now the retro, you know, the retros we know and love. Mm-hmm. Tinker was the first person that showed me in a lot of ways how to interview athletes and work with them, okay. you know, and understand the nuances of who they are as a person and then apply that to a physical product. So He's really good at examining people. Mm-hmm. And I learned a little bit of that skill set from him, just how he watched Michael and how he kind of would pick up on the things that Michael couldn't articulate and then yeah. reflect back to him what he thought he meant or he, what he thought he wanted. And it was often very similar to what Michael couldn't put into words. Yeah. And then the last and final person is, is Mr. Jordan, is MJ himself. Mm-hmm. He used to tell me a lot that, you know, that he would tell me things like, you're not limited. You have mm-hmm. no limits. Mm-hmm. You have no limits. And it didn't really sink in until I left when I realized, like, he's right. Not that I believe I'm great, but limits are a reflection of my own disbelief in in, in myself. And the moment I stop looking at myself for what I don't have and start looking at my weaknesses as potential opportunities for growth and strength, then I am limitless Mm because now I don't have anything that I'm afraid of. And watching him do that business and life and sport, it was the most motivating thing ever. So those three people kind of are my biggest... uh, you know, mentors and advocates early in my career. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and thinking thinking about limits and what you brought up before about how designers are actually like people to ask questions. And um, that one of your mentors, Tinker, I believe is his name, he taught you how to ask questions to athletes to know them better. What are some of those questions that you asked and how did you translate your skills in retail to tech? Yep. So I would say the first piece that people people don't realize that athletes are playing a role. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is... Imagine if your job every day is to go out and compete at a high level and you're supposed to be perfect because somebody saved their money to see you for the first time. And they expect to see exactly what they heard you were about Mm -hmm. when they come and see you perform on that court or in that field or whatever, baseball diamond. That's a very hard thing. You have to go through this switch emotionally in your mind, this switch emotionally, um, I mean, physically in your body 
it's a crazy transformation from being a citizen to now a professional athlete because you see it, that tunnel walk, right? They're, they're literally locked in. Like, I need to come out with this level of aggression because this person in front of me is, a, is someone that's trying to stop me. So they make up personas. They make up stories. MJ would make up fake stats to get him motivated to compete at that level because if you're wealthy and you're no longer starving, mm-hmm. you know, what's driving that hunger, right? Yep. So what I learned from them is how to make that switch. Mm-hmm. And I would ask them questions about, who they were as children. Because for me, the easiest way to get them back into being competitive is to remind them before the lights were on. So a good example of that is Derek Jeter. You know, this dude is the, I mean, he's the modern classic man. He literally represented the Yankees at the highest level his whole career. Mm-hmm. He's 100% a gentleman, just, I mean, he's fearless. But what's interesting, what people don't know about DJ is 99.9% of the time, he was at home playing Miss Pac-Man, reading, <laughs> studying his craft. Like he was not the party dude that people expected him to be. Mm-hmm. So we would sit down, I was showing product, and we would talk over playing Miss Pac-Man, talk about life, his love for Little League, growing up in Michigan, how people never knew what he was racially because he's black and, and uh, I think his mom is Irish. And he just would constantly talk about this world where baseball was freedom to him. Mm-hmm. And so in his shoes, I put this little small detail that so when he laced his shoes up, the lace tip came through a shape that looked like Pac-Man. That's awesome. And then at the tip of the toe, it was like a shape that reminded him of one of the patterns from the Miss Pac-Man game. So every time he got up to bat, he looked down, he saw that pattern. He was reminded of childhood. It was mm-hmm. almost like he went back to being that kid who played Little League in Michigan. Yep. And you just saw this joyfulness come over him because yep. that was my job. My job was to provide weapons to these people who were going out to defend their universe, which was essentially their team or their city. And so I wouldn't tell them how to compete. I just needed to understand what motivated them to compete and then feed them the right tool at the right time. Cause the product is supposed to fade to the background, right? Mm-hmm. The athlete should not even know they're wearing my shoes or my clothes because it should move with their body and ex- instead of moving against it. So I had to, I had to put myself second. It wasn't about my ego and what embellishments I wanted to place on the athlete. It was literally designed to keep them motivated and engaged and perform at the highest level. Yeah. So Tinker taught me that how to, how to dig deep yep. and find out the motivational things that keep them competing. Yep. So how are you as children? And so, yep. and then applying that to tech too. and applying it to tech. Yeah. And we, t- we talked a lot about, you know, the different elements of tech and you know how we translate different things, which is kind of like what you're doing with Trilicon Valley and things like that. Can you explain that whole concept and how you broke into tech? Cause like, even though you're a senior designer, there's a lot of like PhDs that might want to get in tech, yep. but they don't know how to translate the lingo. Like, how did you like teach yourself that? Yeah. So that's, that's a great question, man. Like, so, you know, a lot of the things that people don't know is I came, I went to grad school at Stanford, which people I think know from my LinkedIn profile, which is hilarious, but five years of being here, it wasn't an easy transition. And I already came here with the mindset that I had to reinvent myself, mm-hmm. you know, being a guy from Nike that knew athletes, maybe and got, got me invited to a barbecue or a party, but it wasn't getting me funding. You know, mm-hmm. I was just a nice guy that everybody wanted to associate with. Cause I was at Nike. I was mm-hmm. a different character than you, what you normally see here. So I basically lessened my ego and I started taking on every single odd job possible, like doing logos for startups for like a hundred bucks. And mind you, when I had my consultancy, I was charging way more than that. Uh, But getting here, I knew I needed to build a network and a skill set and show people like, here's this high quality work for like a hundred bucks. Like, why is this dude doing this? But what I wanted to know is two things. One, these startups are funded by somebody. Mm -hmm. The VC who funded them will see my work and be like, well, who's doing that for you? Mm -hmm. So now I have, you know, a clean introduction based on my work versus how I appear or how I show up. So Mm -hmm. people saw what I was doing heard about what I was doing and wanted to just take meetings and get to know me. Cause mm-hmm. they're like, wait, you worked at Nike, you're doing this stuff. Like mm-hmm. my startup told me you're helping in this way. Yep. So I started advising people for free, helping with brand strategy, helping with product strategy, just to kind of get my name out there. Mm-hmm. Then I went and I started to write down in a notebook, all the kind of, you know, they talk about six degrees of separation. So all these names I would hear from John Doerr to you know, you, you name it. I mean, Ryan Sweeney to all these mm-hmm. big name investors, Ben Horowitz. I started to see, okay, okay, who within my network knows them and why do they know them? So it mm-hmm. wasn't about the name of the person. It was why do they have a relationship? What skill sets do they have that made them a person that this person wanted to relate to? Mm-hmm. And I started to look at, take an inventory of my skill sets. I didn't understand deal flows. I didn't understand how venture capital was raised. Even though I went to business school, it's different when you do it. I didn't have the resume that proved that I can be in tech. I was coming from what people thought were just sneakers, which are cotton and rubber and, and synthetic material, despite having worked on significant amount of technology stuff at Nike. 
So I just wanted to know what skill sets and what keywords were attractive to these people. So once I was able to articulate my worth through just volunteering and putting myself in the, in the rooms with folks and explaining my background, the next thing is I started to work on projects specifically to give me very explicit experience. So my first startup that I joined was a company that was doing hardware. That allowed me to understand the supply chain model that's needed for an early stage hardware company, mm-hmm. the relationships, how to recruit those types of engineers, what types of VC firms were investing. And then, of course, having the experience starting a company with Steph, seeing what it was like on the other side of the table, you know, raising funds, being in a room in a software company, seeing how that organization was going to grow, and then being recruited to join Excel as designer in residence. And mind you, all this happened within a five-year period, and it wasn't pretty. I was working three jobs. You mm-hmm. know, I was working with the family, with the family, two kids, one income, making um, <laughs> very little money in the Silicon Valley. And just putting myself out there to learn and grow, learn and grow, learn and grow. That was my whole method. Then when I started Super Rook, I got to the point where I knew what was being said about the entrepreneur when he left the room from working in venture. I knew what it took to raise capital. I knew what it took to recruit. I knew what it took to get people to believe your vision. Now I needed to put the the skin in the game to prove to people there was a there there. Mm-hmm. So basically lived off of 30,000 bucks for a whole year, oh. exhausted my life savings, lived off credit cards, went to China about 10 times in a six month period, made a bunch of email accounts up to think people make people think I had an organization behind me, but it was just me <laughs> and just put it all on the line because I believe in this mission so much. I'm at the same time, my father was fighting cancer, so I'm taking care of oh. them. And so when people look at where we are today, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that it, I didn't get here. It wasn't sweet. It wasn't easy. Money was not just thrown at me. I had to get traction. I had to show people that I was willing to put it all on the line not because that whole fake phrase of skin in the game, but mm-hmm. you have to be willing to stretch yourself because you get one life and you get one one moment that you can own. And I just don't want to be mediocre. And this whole notion of job security isn't real anymore. So if I'm going to apply my talents to anything, it's going to be something I can directly benefit from. So before I took a penny of venture capital, I had already put myself you know, in a situation where I was secretly driving Uber. I was doing everything. And mind you, I have a master's degree from Stanford, yep. undergrad from CCS. <laughs> work with the best athletes in the world. And I'm driving Uber because I believed in my vision that much yeah. that I have no shame yep. at all to grind. And so the journey into tech isn't just about skill set. It is a hundred percent about heart because that's the one skill you can't teach. And humility. I mean, like for someone with all those accolades to be able to not just believe in your own world, but to be able to do all the different things. I mean, did you, when you came out here, were you thinking about building super heroic from day one? From day one. From day one. But I knew yeah. it would take me five years. There were steps, it. right? Yep. So you had to get the job first and do the different work in the freelancer. So that's awesome. And and let, let's you, you brought up some things about your family. I think it's important to bring up because that's kind of core to what you're building. And then it'll segue into like the education and things like that. So can we talk about family and education real quick? Yeah, man. My family is um everything to me, man. Like people who've seen me present or talk, they see they see a slide when I go through all my titles and the only slides that I highlighted at the top is the fact that I'm a believer. Mm-hmm. And when I say believer, I put faith above everything. And mm-hmm. then at the bottom is the fact that I'm a husband and a father. Those are the three things that I refuse to fail at in life. Like everything else, all these other titles I can care less about because I'm not going to be measured, at least in my mind, by the size of my company. But it's going to be the quality of the children that I put into the world. So I take that very seriously. I quit Nike because my son had gotten sick and I realized you know, in that moment that all my gifts and talents were being applied to something that I didn't believe in anymore. And mm-hmm. I'm like, man, I have all these, this knowledge of the human body, how to make products, how to motivate, how to tell stories. And here I am, you know, without a solution to help my own son feel motivated about who he is as a person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it started because of that, but now it's, it's magnificent because my son and my daughter, are like my internal R and D department, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> they mm-hmm. went at the kitchen table with me. They saw me start this with a blank sheet of paper and then, mm-hmm. And something that took two years and 25 people we did in 10 months with three people. Okay. And, you know, it's it's what motivates me because I want my children to grow up and not give themselves excuses. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm look like this, I can't do that. Because I come from here, I can't. That's not true. You know, I think it makes it harder. It makes it more difficult, but it damn sure doesn't make it impossible. Yeah. You know, um, and there's a responsibility when you come from where we come from, you look the way we look. Because when we do something successful... It isn't enough for me to just be the only one. Yep. I'm not satisfied until it's until I'm the norm. Yeah. And so when I hear people say, "Oh, you're the exception," I said, "That's not. I don't like that. Yeah. I want to be. I want to be normal. I want to look like I'm average. Yeah. Because I know that there are more people that are more talented, more people that 
have better ideas. It's just my moment. So while I'm in my moment, I know that not only do I need to put on for my family, but for all the families that don't have my opportunity. Yep. So that's the thing that motivates me the most. Yep. And that's part of like what Trillicum Valley represents. And that's just your family. It's a legacy thing where there's trillions of people that are going to come behind us. And, and going back to like the piece about you know, family and education, mm-hmm. uh, you're part of a collective called Black Jedi Zulu. Yep. Tell us what that group is the importance of education, and then how you're translating it for other people, and then back to your family. Yep, yep. So so to kind of set it up correctly, Trillicon is like the Wu-Tang attack, you know, my seed, marry your seed, marry mm-hmm. his seed. You know, <laughs> Spread I, across families. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of what we do. I mean, we're all, you know, all family men who believe in, in sharing resources. Who are the members of Trillicon? Uh, myself, Christopher Squint Sandifer, Brandon Middleton, Olatunde Sobomahim, and DeVaris Brown. Shout out to all of them. Yes, sir. That's family. So, I mean, for us, we all are individually different, which makes us strong because no one is jealous of each other's opportunities because we all can learn from one another. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing. We set ourselves up in a way where we are constant students of each other. So nobody, nobody goes without. In terms of Black Jedi Zulu, that's Part of the Zulu Nation. It was founded. I'm one of the original members. Uh, myself, Knife Wonder, the music producer, who, who one of the most notable um, music producers in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, also, educator at Duke University. I mean, North Carolina State. Rhapsody, who's a you know Jamla Records, uh, Rock Nation recording artist. I mean, E. Jones. So you, it just goes on and on. It's mm-hmm. a bunch Young of artists. Young Guru too, right? Young Guru. Mm-hmm. I mean, Eric Badu. I mean, it's just it goes on and on. It's people who have backgrounds in entertainment, technology, education. But at the core of what we do is the fact that we serve through not only our own respective industries, but in our communities through, you know, our connection to our origin story. So everything that Ninth and them are doing in North Carolina for Black Jedi Zulu is fundamental to his ability to succeed as a producer, but also as a professor. So, you know, the stuff he announced with, you know, teaching kids, you know, beat making mm-hmm. and how that's an alternative for creativity. Rhapsody, you know, with her campaign where she was sending roses in real life to people who she appreciated just to say, I love you and care, like spreading empathy and joy. I mean, I can go on and on, but Mm -hmm. the organization, the Black Jedi Zulu Nation chapter out of North Carolina is specifically set up for education, empowerment, but also just having fun. Yep. 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 No, I I love it because it just goes back to like a lot of times, you know, we talk about on the podcast how important it is to figure out the best way for you to learn. Yep. And you're like essentially what you guys are doing, just taking the things that are translatable and easily understandable by its people and just making it real for them. 100%. Can you tell us about Street Code and yeah. how that, that fits into this? Yeah. So Tunde is the architect and mastermind behind Street Code. Um, we all pool our resources to support each other in, in our respective areas. So, you know, on the bottom of my packaging for Super Rug is the Trillicon Valley logo. And then when you see what Tunde is doing with Street Code, all the Trillicon Valley people show up. So what he's doing it's creating a platform for people to see all the various faces of technology, but then mentoring kids on how to get there. So it's not enough to tell you it's possible for them. They actually put into, excuse me, a curriculum ways that kids and, and people in the East Palo Alto community can develop those skill sets to be attractive to these tech companies when they show up. So it ranges from Tech Tuesdays that happen every Tuesday night down at EPA, where they bring in companies to like break down in real time how they make their products, how they recruit, how they look for talent, how they groom talent, so people can get over that, you know, that, that ideological hurdle of I'm not good enough. Then, you know, we sponsor a project where we're going to give 15 students the chance to work on a part of our company so they can have their names on the patent. Um, there's other people in the community that are pointing their resources. But what Tune Day has created with Street Code is probably, to me, one of the most effective platforms that allow people to come in that are fearful of tech and find a comfortable, relatable person that can coach them, mentor them, and get them prepared to jump into tech and not only jump in, but succeed. Yep. And that goes back to your whole apprenticeship stuff, too, 100%. going back to giving them an outlet for them to work on. And, and you know, tying it back to design, you mm-hmm. know, when you started thinking about this company, you know, you see yourself as a, as a superhero or even, like, you've, you're fascinated mm-hmm. with superheroes and, and different people. So let's talk about that and also, like, how you came up with the logo and, and things like that. Yeah. So the first person I ever saw that was that looked like me, that was a creator was Lucius Fox in Batman. He still to this day is my hero. Hopefully one day I get to play that role in some capacity. Uh, real <laughs> for life. people that don't know who's Lucius Fox. <laughs> Lucius Fox is the CEO of Wayne Enterprises. He made all the gear for Batman and he was a brother um, mm-hmm. that was tall and bald. So it was pretty cool. <laughs> so I fit, I fit, I fit two of them tall black, well, three of them tall black and bald, but um, and now I'm making gear for my version of superheroes, which is children. But what was important about the Lucius Fox character was that it made it tangible and real. 
even if it was a comic book character, it still was the fact that somebody put it in writing, which made it real for me. And now I look, I kind of laugh because I see people compare Tony Starks and Elon Musk. And I'm like, man, well, okay, if I can have that same comparison mm-hmm. with Jason Maiden and Lucius Fox, mm-hmm. then I did something meaningful in my life. I came up with the idea for superheroic, simply looking at the trajectory of the desirable archetype of an athlete. Mm-hmm. We're at the tail end of the athlete being the singular narrative for, you know, I would say human potential. People used to be like, man, if I can be like Mike. But now we're getting to this moment in time where kids, because of social media, are seeing you know people with um, very different and in some cases very limited talent still have the same amount of attention as someone as you know magnificent as Kevin Durant or mm-hmm. LeBron James. You know, mm-hmm. ten million followers for playing with Silly Putty on yeah. Instagram, right? So these kids are like, wait, I don't have to have a jump shot in order to be well known. I could mm-hmm. just be well dressed or be really creative. So they've democratized greatness through social media, which means that human the human experience desires and craves something to believe in. And now you see the emergence of the superhero archetype as the most prevalent one in pop culture and mm-hmm. media um, and mindset. And we just, at the right time and you know, right place. That new uh, Thor movie had crazy record numbers. It was a great movie. Too. Yeah, mm-hmm. Thor was amazing. I mean, and it's only going to get, it's not, we haven't even seen the peak of the mm-hmm. superhero narrative. You know, Black Marvel, Panther's about to come out. Man, Marvel Universe is about to be popping for the next three or four years. Mm-hmm. So this generation of kid is growing up with this notion that they can become real superheroes, especially with advancements in technology. You know, people are figuring out ways to live longer, to merge, you know, robotics into our body. So this is a generation of kids who really will grow up to really see superheroes in their lifetime. So that was the first thing, understanding trends in society and, and trends in pop culture and, and narrative. But then secondarily, looking at the icons that exist that most people just think are protected and, and you know, no one would try to own them. So the lightning bolt, one of the most common things that you see but no one ever trademarked it. So we trademarked it and we own it, which is wild. <laughs> built into the keyboard. In, yeah, yeah. Flex. And so what's wild is I look at companies who are like, yo, we need to create these sticker packs and emoji packs. I'm like, man, look, the emoji of the lightning bolt was sitting right there. So I'm just going to own it. So anytime you want to promote my brand, just put the lightning bolt. It's naturally, it's built yep. into your keyboard. So we, we look at using something that's common in an uncommon way. And that's pretty much every, even the fact that we own the verb, super heroic, right? Like it's a verb. It's not a noun. Marvel owns the noun superhero. Mm-hmm. We argue, yo, it's a verb. So it's mm-hmm. very different in structure and context and meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so we own that phrase. So it's people overthink it. And sometimes the this, the best ideas are the ones that you think other people already own. Yep. And I just did a deep examination as to what's relevant, what can catalyze motion and movement and what can be easily recalled from a visual standpoint. And these were the elements that work that fit the brand DNA. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of, of human potential and, and the abilities and being super heroic, can you describe for us in audio form like what growing up on the South Side of Chicago is like for people that don't know to fully understand like your journey? Yeah, so the South Side is essentially a tapestry of broken dreams and opportunities that never were filled because of people lowering their own expectations because they're told to. I mean, everyone on the South Side in some way, shape or form are immigrants because they migrated from the South to the North or they came from another country there. So it's an immigrant culture because people don't think about the fact that the folks who came from the South during the great migration, they were displaced. They went to the city to find new jobs. They went to the city to recreate themselves, to be safe, to get away from the South and the things that were happening down there. And a lot of these people had to reinvent themselves and start over. So there's this, this deep sense of purpose and work ethic that exists in Chicago that I don't think exists anywhere else in our country, uh, maybe parts of New York, maybe parts of Detroit, but just a mass amount of intellectual people that lessen themselves to take jobs in a steel mill or in the meat market. That's embedded into our DNA. So we're naturally just born, you know, scrappers and hustlers. So growing up in Chicago, you know, imagine walking out your front door and to your right is one set of colors and a hat is turned one way. To your left is another set of colors in your hat and their hat's turned another way. And here you are a child of the age of nine or 10 having to choose which side are you going to be on just to get to school? And that's a very unfortunate, very um, heartbreaking choice when people are forced into have to identify with things that are illicit or illegal or, or quote unquote bad because they want to go and get an education. Mm-hmm. I mean, that city is at its core, the heartbeat of black America because we had Bronzeville. It was founded by Jean-Baptiste Dussabo, who's a Haitian man. Mm-hmm. He came up there and taught the Native Americans how to do trade with the French that were coming down from Canada. I mean, our whole our whole city shows the industriousness of the the African and African-American diaspora. Like it's so beautiful and it's so beautifully rich that growing up, I didn't hear stories of 
black people being intellectually inferior. I had the Nation of Islam brothers on the South Side on 87 telling me, man, black man is God. Do you know who you are? Do you mm-hmm. know what you can do, black man? Free your mind. And then I had on the West Side, you know, the gang leaders who were telling me, man, go out there, make that paper. Don't work for no man. Work for yourself. And then you had the athletes, man, get in the gym, work hard, you know, build your, build your. So you got bombarded with these messages that just told you you can do anything. But then when you walked outside, you were reminded that you had nothing. Mm-hmm. And so what do you do with this, this amount of energy, this amount of optimism, and every single morning is being stripped from you? Because when you walk out your door, you're being reminded that if you make it home, you'll be lucky. So it's this weird feeling of hopelessness, but hopefulness at the same time. Like You get to where you're going, and you believe like, man, this is awesome. This is dope. And then you hear something happens, and you're like, here it goes again. My life can just be snatched in a heartbeat. Yeah. And so you just stop caring, and you become... Fearless. So Chicago is full of people that have all the DNA to literally change the world. They have zero fear, but just no resources. Yeah. And so when you take people with no resources and zero fear and you put them in a neighborhood that's heavily armed, purposefully heavily armed, you can see why it's turned out the way it's turned out. You give these brothers opportunities to work, they will build a civilization. Yep. But you give them opportunities to kill, they will destroy an entire population of people. Mm-hmm. So it's Chicago is the is the I would say the beta test for everything that happens in the rest of this country because it's so controlled, it's so su- surveyed, you know, it's so monitored that they can do these small little tests to see how they can create civil unrest amongst people that are just brilliant and industrious and capable, but don't know their own value. So it's the most amazing experience ever growing up in Chicago because despite all the violence, man, you still knew who you were and you felt beautiful. Like being black was so beautiful because you saw what happened in Hyde Park with the African bookstores and the brothers on the, eating the chew sticks and mm-hmm. wearing Egyptian musk oil and, you know, the the people on 87 selling the final call and, mm-hmm. and selling the bean pies. And then you go a little bit further south and you got the Mexican brothers, man, with the taco stands mm-hmm. making it. I mean, it was just amazing to see yeah. culture. And um, I don't think any other city is like that, man. And I think Chicago 100% for who I am because it taught me to not be afraid of no man, yeah. you know, and, and to fight for what I believe in. Yeah, yeah. And I remember when Timor and I were there recently doing a tour of Full Stack Academy and we were getting connected to like the people that, you know, founded the Black Tech Mecca and Blue 1647, things like that. The surprising thing was, what what did they tell us about the people on the South Side that, that they never, they never saw the lake? Yeah. And like there's people that yeah. grew up in Chicago their whole life, yeah. never saw the lake. Yeah, it's very well Which known. is very similar to like living in the Bay yeah. and never knowing about tech. It's yeah. like, how does purpose. that happen? It's on purpose, right? bro. They, they they used to tell us, don't go to the north side. You go to the north side, you won't come home. Like, we were so, we were conditioned to stay on the south side because we were told the north side wasn't for us. So the furthest you might go was downtown to, like, Buckingham Fountain or Rock and Roll McDonald's to talk to girls or something, or, you know, or Nike Town on Michigan Avenue. That was about it. You get there, you turn right back around and go south. So yeah. very few people were actually wrenched towards the north side. I went there because the museums were there. Yeah. And I had to get on a train to go to the art museums in the city. And so that's the thing that started to get me out was like, man, it's, it's more. Yeah. I can see more. So. Yeah. So um, let, let, let's let's bring it home. So I, I know, you know, we're going to get closer to the lightning round. But like, how did you bring all of this together? Like, is your team all from Chicago? How did you connect it to your mentors like John Mida, who's also been on the podcast? Like, how did all that happen? And, uh, you know, tell, tell us about your team. Give some shout outs. Yeah. So um, my co-founder and I, we met at Nike. His name is Herschel Sisodia, mm-hmm. a brilliant brother from Baltimore, actually, um, has a background in brand marketing. So he and I knew we would start something together years ago. We didn't know what, but we just had this kind of Scotty and Mike relationship where mm-hmm. we, we just passed the ball to each other corporately. So it just kind of worked. Mm-hmm. Um, my father is the chief operating officer. You know, he has a tremendous background in manufacturing and supply chain and operations. So while he was fighting cancer, one of the things that gave him joy was working with me and talking with me and rebuilding this relationship because I left awesome. home at 16. And so my dad didn't have the ability to, to be with me through my early adulthood years. Yeah. So now to reclaim that time, you know, and, and be with each other and him be a grandfather to my son and also build something with me, I think is just beautiful and awesome. special. Amazing. Then, I mean, every single person from Johnny Nguyen, um, young brother that I met when he was a, he owned a retail shop when he was in high school in Boston. And he likes to say I was his mentor. I just like to say I'm a big brother. We kept in touch over the years. He's made a bunch of moves. And, and, and now that I started this company, I was able to recruit him in to help with e-commerce. Then he brought a brilliant young woman with him named Angela, who they worked together with. The young designer we just hired, Cubby Golden. You know, he worked in Nike, but we never worked together. Coincidentally, he went to college with two of the kids here, who two of the designers here that work at Playground, and he knows Johnny. So it's just this 
I mean, the Matthias Crawford, Dr. Matthias Crawford, soon to be uh, from Stanford, has a PhD in play. Mm-hmm. He and I met five years ago when I told you I was doing random yep. logos and meeting people. And and uh, I told him, like, one day I'm going to start a company focused on play. I'm going to mm-hmm. need you, man. Finish mm-hmm. that PhD. And so now he's here. Dope. Then Caitlin, uh, who just joined, I met her through a mutual friend I did Bible study with in grad school. Amazing. And uh, he said, man, there's this young woman who you need to meet. I don't know if anything will work out, but you should meet her. Hired her on the spot. I mean, mm-hmm. so- how all this came together was me just being willing to ask questions and, mm-hmm. and to let people know what my dream was. Like yep. I had a vision to turn the whole world into a superhero training facility so that kids can have confidence and have the support to continue to grow in their confidence, but also have the skill set to back the confidence up. Mm-hmm. And so when I talked to John Maeda years ago about what I wanted to do, we met through a mutual friend. He was like, that sounds amazing. You know, if you ever do it, let me know. I'll be the first one to give you a check. And he kept his word. That's what's up. You know, so- Man, a lot of times in this game, it's just putting yourself out there, not worrying about being judged if your idea sounds crazy. Because one of these days, those crazy ideas can possibly change the world and change your life. Yeah. So that's just kind of how a lot of this came came about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, that, that's awesome. And um, and what should we expect from Super Heroic over the next few years? Man, um, a whole lot. Because I expect a whole lot out of myself. You know, I tell everybody this thing. One, I gave myself a goal and a vision for a company that I know I can't complete in my lifetime. So I'm free of worrying about what people think about me. I know the person I reference a lot is Walt Disney. He wasn't alive to see Disneyland open, mm-hmm. but look at the impact Disney made in his lifetime, mm-hmm. right? Like he had a dream so big that it would take multiple lifetimes to complete. He enjoyed the fruits of his labor while he was alive, but the full grand vision, it was just bigger than his lifetime. So that's yeah. essentially how I look at Super Rug. My full grand vision will take multiple lifetimes. So it forces me to think about succession planning and how to build an org that can last and sustain, be profitable and be defensible for many years to come. So we're going to build out multiple verticals. We're going to create a very unique ecosystem of play and we're going to scale and be able to really show the world what's possible when you believe in a youth. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's very cool. So Jason, at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. Yeah. And this is where um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I know you've listened to a few of our episodes, so you're yeah. probably familiar with us. But uh, this is where Arto or Ruben and I will ask you several questions. Yeah. And we're looking for like those actionable steps that maybe someone who is 16, 17 listening to the podcast can implement to get to where you are today. Yeah. So with that said, uh, take it away, guys. Yeah. Thanks, Timar. And uh, this question takes us back to the basics. So Jason, imagine you just moved to a brand new city. You didn't know anyone and you only had $100 to spend. Mm-hmm. What would you do and how would you spend that $100 to get back on your feet and um, break into tech? That's a great question. So if I moved to a new city and I had $100 in my pocket, mm-hmm. that's literally my story when I got to undergrad in Detroit. <laughs> so I can <laughs> speak quite well. First thing I would do with the 100 bucks is ration out money for meals because I'm going to have to eat and sustain energy because I know I'm going to be on the ground meeting as many people as possible. I would Mm -hmm. also take that money and I would find ways to figure out what events I need to be at. So sometimes it's buying newspapers and looking up classifiers, looking for odd jobs, just ways for me to pop, you know, to, to get my name into the broadest market. A lot of times, you know, now in the digital age with a hundred bucks, you can put out an ad on social media and, and show people that you're in the city. Back then when I got to Detroit, I was looking at classifiers and just trying to pay, you know, five or ten dollars to go to like community gatherings. So, you know, I would go to open mics because I figured if creativity is happening, there's probably cool people that are like minded that know opportunities for creativity to be monetized. So I spend five bucks to go to open mic here, ten dollars to go to a place there. So go to where you you can find, I would say, common interest. And it doesn't always have to be the high end. Go to where other people are like you looking for opportunities. College campuses, you know, go and just buy like $15 shirt of the college campus and walk around like you're a student. Nobody's going to question it. If you wear a, a university shirt, you can meet a lot of people in the cafeteria. You can meet a lot of people in the bookstore because the whole point is building a peer network immediately because they're going to have more, more knowledge than you have. And it's less intimidating when you feel like you're equally yoked because the, the, if you feel like, oh, I'm a college student and well, I'm 19, I'm not in college. How do I relate to college students? You relate because you're still both 19. So don't look at what you don't have. Look at where you relate. Look at common interest and hang out in those areas where people congregate. You may not meet, you know, the top CEO, but you may meet a person who who knows a person and who knows a person. So it's the multiplier effect. Start with where you are, get access to the people that you can get access to, and then level yourself up from there. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we talked a lot about being a classic man, a classic woman, being well-rounded. Yeah. And there's part of the reason why you started your organization is not just because 
You want to create a tech-enabled play environment. People don't play anymore. Yeah. Like they play video games, but they not they don't go outside. So, how do you feel about disconnecting? Yeah. And what is some insight? I mean, what what's some of the routines that you follow in order to balance and you know stay refreshed and have a a well-rounded perspective? I um, mean, that's a great question. One, I don't pick up my phone. I put my phone on Do Not Disturb to 10 a.m. So between, I get up at five every morning. Mm-hmm. I get my kids situated for school. I go to the gym. Then I do quiet time where I read my word. I pray. I get myself centered. And then I read, you know, books that are going to help me throughout my day. Um, I read the newspaper. I just try to consume, 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 in, you know, information that's relevant to feeding my spirit and my soul before I let the world in. The moment you let the world in, you become distracted. Because that's really what prohibits us from being disconnected is we don't know how to block distractions anymore. So I just went back to giving myself margins in my day. So before 10 a.m., people know I don't schedule meetings. It's all about getting prepared for my day. Then at night, when I get home, I put my phone back on, do not disturb. I usually cool down, chill with my family, do yoga, clear my brain from the day, go on a long walk to clear my mind from all the digital noise. People don't realize the connection between restlessness and how much screen time they have. So the more you stare at that screen, the more you need to get out and and turn your brain off by taking a brisk walk, even doing jumping jacks and jumping rope, because that that motion helps to get the blood flow going, which then frees the brain back up from being basically turned on from looking at tech. So just putting margins throughout your day. I mean, look, I work with the world's best athletes and I could tell you one thing, they get 12 to 14 hours of sleep a day. Mm-hmm. So in the Bay Area, we hear, oh man, I grind for 22 hours. Yo, it's been proven you do not get better the longer you work. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. And when you work with world-class athletes who are billionaires and you see them resting so that they can perform in their moment, you understand that you may not be able to rest for 12 to 14 hours, but you do need a solid six to eight and you do need to put margins in your day where you can breathe and reset. So those are the principles that I adhere to because without, I'm only, my organization is only as good as I am. So yep. if I'm not rested, I'm not healthy, I'm not strong, then I can't expect my organization to be, you know, to be uh, anything different than what I am. That's so, leadership. Yep. Yeah. And it also helps you prioritize and think about things that are important and need your response versus things like responding to everything that comes your, comes your way, right? 100%. Yeah. So the next question, it's about giving advice. Mm-hmm. So what we found with our listeners is a lot of them get very excited listening to our podcast, listening to the stories of our guests. But we also want our listeners to take action and actually take that step to break in or find out their passion or career. If you were giving, let's say, your, I don't know if you have a brother or sister, but if, if, you have, uh, uh, if your younger brother came to you and, and asked you for advice, what would you tell them that you would want them to do now that you've done all of these accomplishments in your life? Man, the first critical thing is don't look at yourself as less than anyone, mm-hmm. like ever. You know, we play this game with ourselves where we say, oh, well, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. Therefore, I never can do X. But I'm a firm believer in growth mindset, not fixed mindset. No one should start, should end where they started. So I always tell people when they come to me for advice and they feel a little bit nervous, it's like, look, first and foremost, you should feel nervous because anything worth doing is going to be hard. So just mm-hmm. get over the fact that it's going to be hard and just accept it because- <laughs> difficulty is part of the journey. I mean, it's just, that's the name of the game, but it's not impossibility. So how I phrase it and I say it to my children often is I'll ask this one question, is what you're trying to do difficult or is it impossible? Mm-hmm. They say, oh, it's difficult. I'm like, we could do difficult, but if mm-hmm. you told me it's impossible, I want you to prove to me it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Nine times out of 10, we, we place the label on a mindset of impossibility on tasks that are just extremely difficult because we don't want to exert the energy to overcome a difficulty. So I tell everyone, don't worry about what you don't have Ask yourself, is it a difficult or is it impossible? And once you come to the conclusion that it's just insanely difficult, then level up and find people that can motivate you spiritually and mentally. But entrepreneurship or anything worth doing is lonely because you don't have examples in front of you, which is why you don't know the next step. So don't be afraid to go out there and, and risk it all to fail because I don't believe in failure. I believe in winning and learning. And most people who are afraid of failure care more about what people think of them than what they think of themselves. So I don't, I only focus on my own self-care. I focus on how I feel about me and I have to love who I am, weaknesses and all, and accept myself. And that's, that's really the best growth mechanism and tactic that I try to share with as many young people as possible. Yep. Yep. And, um, you and I share a passion for music Yep. and you have a mixtape with, I think, Cousin B or something yep. like that. Yep. So tell us where to find that mixtape and also like what's some of your favorite music to listen to whenever you want to get in the zone? Yeah, so um, you can go to TrilliconValley.com. The mixtape's on there. The way we made it, and this was a few years ago, 
starting to become more popular now is we pick certain songs that have certain frequencies and tones that get you into the creative zone to unlock that part of your brain, the alpha waves and all that. Now it's becoming more common. I have ADD, so I've always used music to focus. Um, so it's something that we made selfishly for ourselves and then we gave it to the world because we just thought it would be something cool to give away. Music, um, everything from, I listen to a lot of John Coltrane. So the two albums I listen to on repeat, on repeat are Love Supreme and Illmatic because both of them kind of you know, they kind of represent my life. Like the first time I heard Illmatic, it literally saved my life because I was in a car. It was April, I think, 4th, 1994. Some of my friends were going to retaliate against some people who'd done something to them. And I sat in my mom's car, listened to the album from beginning to end. And during that time period, which was like an hour and I think 12 minutes, the full length of the album, I think, like my friends got arrested and then some of them got shot. And it was crazy. Yeah. Like listening to Nas describe my life and, and hearing him be like Langston Hughes on top of a soundtrack was amazing. And then the Love Supreme came into my life right before I started this company. I had heard it a million times, but I never read the liner notes. I finally read the liner notes. And, it, and John Coltrane was talking about, you know, this this album was his best attempt to say thank you for God. Thank you to God. And he was like, in every good endeavor, there has to be thankfulness. Mm-hmm. And during that time period of his life, he had just got over, you know, heroin addiction. And he was struggling with his faith. And so he made this beautiful testament to the Lord of like, man, thank you for saving me. And wow. it was right at the moment where I wanted to give up and quit. I discovered the line of notes and I was like, that's what I want superheroic to be. Like my greatest attempt to say thank you. Wow. And so going through what I've been through, finding that album at that time, like I listened to those two things and repeat to keep me motivated and remind me of my journey. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, no, thank you for sharing, sharing everything with us. You know, John Coulter, and I, I think he is, even has a big influence in the Fillmore uh, here in the Bay. I still haven't visited. It's, you got like yeah, a church, church, right? Yeah. <laughs> Straight up <laughs> gotta, church. Gotta check that out. But what's the best way for people to, to stay in touch with you? Oh, man, just hit me on IG at Jason Maiden. I don't have any tricky spelling. It's just J-A-S-O-N-M-A-Y-D-E-N. You know, shoot me a note. I always try to respond as quickly as possible. Uh, you can follow Super Heroic on Instagram. You see me out in the street, holler at me. I'm really approachable. I mean, I don't, I, mean, I just, I, I'm just a normal dude, man. I just tries to use my gifts and talents to help other people. So yeah. I'm, I'm easily reachable. Yeah, no, you, you've been heavily influenced to us. I know you got to get to your family. I'm not sure if this is going to work, but I'm going to try to play us out with that voice, you know, because <laughs> like he, he actually helped us create our second blog, which was the reality of breaking stars at the first product you build yourself. So let's see if it plays. If it doesn't, then it's fine. Ruben, what's up, Doc? This is Jason. And give you a shout. I thought it'd be quicker if I called you uh, as I'm traveling back east and, and so responding via email be quite difficult. Um Wanted to just say, hey, I really love the blog post. It's clear, it's direct, has a great kind of editorial tone of voice, has, you know, a nice rhythm and cadence to it. The, the point that I would, I would, the thing that I would point out with the post and teaching points in general, because it's hard to write a note about this, is just the organization of the, the key takeaways and having those be super sharp and crisp beyond just, you know, reading an article, but having that maybe be something that you go to as you build out a visual roadmap or a visual toolkit to support the context of your story. So, and then I'll also move those to the bottom. So, like, you go from the, the key points about, you know, breaking in the startups thing is six of them. Let me pull it back up. Yes, it's, it's five key points, and then you jump into, you know, kind of pack accordingly, and then you move to the Legend of John, and you say, you know, contact us. I would organize the key points Either usually you put them at the beginning or you put them at the end, but then also have a visual component so that each story builds on the next. Because if you hope a followers come from part one or part two, then it'd be really interesting to see how this goes into, a, like I said, a visual set of tools. Uh, I think you're onto something good, man. I, like I said, I really like your story. I like getting to know more about you. Um, I've always thought you were an impressive person and stuff. Um, this is really cool to see your journey. And, uh, you know, uh, the twins and everything is hilarious, man, the Russian twins and all that. Uh, this is a really, really cool story, and I think that it needs to, I would love to hear, you know, kind of the, just adding different media to it, you know, the, the voice, the video, like really pulling this together in a podcast format would be interesting. Like reading on Medium is great, but I think the audience that's trying to break into startups also doesn't have time to read because they're out there working. So they'll listen to this, but it's like, man, if you really want to, you know, kind of play up the behavior, I think the audio component could be really compelling because the busier, crazier people sitting down and reading, even if it's for 10 minutes, that's 10 minutes they can be out there hustling and grinding. And sometimes, like you said, it's that little bit of motivation that, that, your, that your friend receives in an email back from Max. It could come in form of audio. I'm a big fan of audio. I'm a big fan of motivation. So I'm proud of you, man. I'm proud of what you're doing. I like it a lot. I'm not trying to be short when I say that I think it's great. I just think it's the, organi- the organization of the flow of the teaching points and making sure those are sticky because that's what people are going to carry with them and what they're going to share. 
So yeah, hopefully that that's helpful. Hopefully, you know, answer some of the things and and in your email and you know in in some of the organizations in the publishing platforms talk about you know pushing it out that new code or those are great man but also you know get it out into other cultural based you know platforms man you know man flag hype beast flag you know these publications that that are going to attract unique different types of people who may not feel like they fit in because you go to the, the udacity the code or it's like people have already self-selected to try to get into startups but if you're trying to catch the new fish they kind of go and fish in, in a new pond so Proud of you, man. Keep grinding. I'm out here on the east, man, getting stuff done. But you know, trying to just just represent on behalf of us, you know, trying to make it, man. So, holla, your boy, man. This is Jason. It's my personal number. So lock me in. Peace. So that that's one of the first messages yeah. that Jason never left me. I probably played that like a hundred different times. This was before the podcast launched. So, thank you course, for everything. Man, um, again, you're a big influence, man. We're excited to see where Superhero goes, man. Yes, yeah. Sir. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.